Hello and welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help people find the podcast and we really appreciate your time. Today on Tech Done Right, we're going to be talking about software, open source, and Rails with Eileen Uchatel and Andrew Horner. Uh, Eileen, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Eileen Uchatel. I am a senior systems engineer at GitHub on the platform systems team. I work a lot on uh, the internals and the externals, which includes the GitHub application and the Rails framework. I'm on the Rails core team and the Rails security team, and I care a lot about performance and security and open source. And we also have Andrew Horner. Andrew, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Andrew Horner. I'm a senior developer at TableXI. I work front-end, back-end, basically whatever needs to get done. Great. So, Eileen, uh, we wanted to have you on. We wanted to talk about Rails core and the work that you do. So, first of all, how did you get started as a developer, and then how did you wind up as part of the Rails core? I know you've worked on Rails for a, a few years. So, how did you get involved, and how did you come to be on the Rails core team? If I tell the whole story about how I became a programmer, it gets really, really long. So, we'll just fast-forward to the part where I decided that speaking at conferences was something that I wanted to do, even though I found it super terrifying. Like I thought maybe I would die if I spoke at a conference, but I I also knew it was really, really important to my career and making myself more visible in the Ruby and Rails communities and blogging was fine and all, but I wanted to do more than that. just that. I actually gave a talk on active record at Mountain West in I think it was 2013 or 14, I can't remember. And that's where I met Aaron Patterson. And meeting Aaron Patterson was how I started contributing to Rails because apparently I had found a bug in Active Record and didn't realize it. I was there. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. I remember this very. I remember this very clearly. You found you uh, you met Aaron because he asked you a question at the end of your presentation and you redirected it back to him. Is that? Yes. Yeah. He asked me why they don't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> and since I was not they and he was, was at yeah. that time, he was, I asked him, well, why don't they fix it? Yeah. So we started pairing after that regularly on problems in Rails, first that bug and then other performance related issues. And I worked a lot on improving the performance of integration tests. And then I most recently wrote the Rails system testing framework, the Capybara integration. So after that, that was enough things. I mean, I did a, a lot of things. And so getting on Rails core requires having a well-rounded experience with the framework. You can't really just be into one part of it because core has to make decisions about all sorts of features and the future of the framework. So getting lots of experience in different areas of Rails was part of that. I don't know a whole lot about how Rails governs. I don't know as much as I should, I guess, about how Rails governs itself internally. Like By being core, what rights and privileges does that give you? So I'll go over the different levels so then it makes it more clear where some people might be. Because the GitHub UI doesn't really make it super clear how the differences between the teams and their sort of big differences there are, there's the issues team and the issues team is, has like technically full rights because that's how GitHub works. You can't give someone just rights to edit issues. You have to give them like full or like just, oh, they can only merge documentation pull requests. Well, that, that that's the how, there's no way for GitHub to know this is a documentation pull request. 
I'm so tempted to ask you why they don't fix it right now. Yeah, I know. I, I'm not on that team. So <laughs> it would be really hard, difficult for GitHub to figure out like, sure, this, sure. this is actually a documentation pull request, which issues team is only allowed to merge documentation right. pull requests and or triage issues. Yeah, I'm just messing around. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I figured I should explain it before someone will actually listen to me on the internet. <laughs> and so then the next level is committers. And so committers have full push access, but they don't have rights to release the gems. Now, some people are going to be confused by that because I didn't do the actual Rails 5 release last year when I wasn't on right. Core yet, but that was because I was the release manager. Yeah, I had temporary rights to release. So for each release, I would get rights for about 10 minutes <laughs> and then they would go away. So I couldn't, you know, it wasn't like actual rights to release and it had to be given to me by someone each time and then taken away. And so then now when you're on Core, then you have release rights on Ruby gems without a script needing to be run every time. And you have access to the all ever Twitter password, which you don't have otherwise. I can just tweet whatever I want now from the Rails Twitter account. That seems like the kind of power you can use exactly once. Yeah. And then and then you also have merge rights on all the repositories that you don't necessarily have just because you have uh, merge rights on Rails. So a lot of times you'll get it to like the main a core of Rails, a core and Sprockets uh, when you're a committer. But then when you're core, then you get all the other extra stuff that I don't remember what's there, like the blog and the website and other stuff. What's the motivation for the release manager as a separate role? It seems like it would be just as much work to spin up privileges for somebody as it is to just release the gems yourself. The the role of the release manager is more than just actually releasing the gems. A lot of it has to do with wrangling the people who said they were going to write features or fix bugs before the release. Because once you release a beta one, that's a feature freeze and no more, no new features can go in, but you can't beta freeze before there's actually features. And so since a lot of people on like core and committers and anyone who's writing big features for the next versions of Rails don't necessarily have full time or any time to work on open source as part of their job of every day. So a lot of that is just like wrangling and like figuring out like, okay, do we need help on this issue? Can we actually get this feature in? Um, a lot of like triaging issues and identifying, okay, which ones are bugs that are actually related to the beta one release and need to go into the beta two or RC and eat uh, what else? And what are release blockers? Who's going to write the release notes? Who's going to edit the release notes? And then, you know, like the final part of it is not just releasing the gems. Like that's actually the easiest part is just hitting the release button. Right. It's running the gems locally to test them, building an app locally to make sure that everything just like by default works. For example, right before the 5.0 final release, I found out that <laughs> SAS Rails or something, some of the gems, or maybe it was Sprockets or something, needed a new release and didn't work with Rails 5 as it had stood currently. So that was a fun last minute. Get the release that gem so that we can get it in and then release Rails 5. One question I have is like, what's the internal process of deciding what features or what the priorities for the next version of Rails are? So we don't meet or, you know, like have hangouts ever. But we do have a chat that's just for people who are on the core team. So like a lot of the feature discussion actually happens in the contributors chat. So then everyone who has a commit bit can be involved in that too, including the issues team. But the core team is more for, well, it's for two things, like making those big decisions. And then like in the event that like somebody needed to step down or something happened to them, that someone else 
knew what the future of Rurales should be and they were trusted to do that rather than because like David really drives Rails and Rails features. I think some, some like from the outside, sometimes it feels like, like, yes, Rails is everybody's framework, but Rails isn't necessarily driven by everybody. Yes, everybody can contribute and like put their ideas in and, and contribute back to the framework and try to influence it. But really it comes down to like, what does David see as the future of the framework? Because it is his framework. Mm-hmm. Like things get changed in Rails through a couple of different routes. Like there, people can file bugs. People can file security issues. People can make feature requests. There can be like large feature requests that, that come from, uh, from David or from Basecamp or, or, or are driven by some desire to change the future of the framework. Let's say like I submit a patch that, that is just a, it's not a huge issue. It's just a small feature that I found useful on a number of different applications. What's the process by which I could make that part of Rails coming from, I'm not a committer. So what would I need to do? And then what would you guys do in response to that to turn something? And let's assume that it's useful to turn something from an external request or some a code that we're running into something that becomes part of the Rails framework. First, if you find a security issue, do not open a pull request or issue on GitHub. Please. Nobody. Ever. <laughs> it's it's bad. It's bad because then it's public. I just have to say that because I also on the being on the security team, it like makes me really nervous when someone opens a security issue. So if you find a security issue, email security at rubyonrails.org or make a hacker one account and submit it there. Okay. And if you make hacker one, we're gonna make you go through hacker one anyway, because that's how you get paid. So you know, if it's a real security vulnerability, you're going to get paid. Okay, I didn't know any of this. Could you describe what Hacker One is? If I don't know what it is, somebody else out there doesn't know what it is. So Hacker One is kind of like GitHub for security issues. Uh, everything is private until it's made public. Uh, you can usually report a security security vulnerability. Everyone on the security team is notified. We on the security team can have a private internal conversation about the issue and how to fix it. We can also communicate with the researcher directly about how to fix it and then maybe send patches back and forth to verify that it's fixed. And then once it is fixed and you go through to the fixed stage, you get paid for finding a vulnerability. Now, we on Rails don't control how you get paid and when you get paid. So that's controlled by some other organization that now I'm blanking on. Okay, so there are other, there's another organization that is sponsoring bounties on Rails security issues. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So this is, this is actually, this is something I didn't, had no insight into at all. So how often do you get security, like genuine security problems coming in through that channel? Not super often. A lot of, it's funny. A lot of them are actually stuff about our certs on Ruby on rails.org that don't necessarily matter, but sometimes we get, we get real vulnerabilities and, you know, we either don't always know how to fix them. I mean, that's just how security stuff goes. So a lot of it is a lot of back and forth with security researchers and people that are knowledgeable about security stuff on Rails. And then we have to move our release forward. I mean, with, there was one vulnerability not that long ago that, that somebody wrote a blog post about how long it took us to fix, but the part of the problem is we didn't know how to fix it. And also you shouldn't be doing that in your Rails app in the first place. So it's like one of those two of one half, half dozen of the other. Right. And then that becomes, so the, so then, then, then there's a, uh, I assume, uh, you know, the internal Rails process of kicking off uh, a patch and kicking off versions for all the releases that are inside the security window takes place at the end of that. Yeah. Okay. So 
let's say that I have not found a security vulnerability in Rails, which I, given my own skill set, am unlikely to find. I've got some useful add-on, and I feel like it should become part of Rails. And so what would I, what should I do in that case? So depending on whether or not it's a bug or a feature, mm-hmm. if it's a bug, you should make a pull request that has a test and has a good reproduction script so that we understand the actual bug and what needs to be fixed, and then open a pull request. We don't need an issue that matches a pull request. It is good to like search and make sure that someone else hasn't already done that work before you do it. So if your application's on like Rails 4 and you're like, oh, I found a bug in Rails 4, make sure it's not on 5 before you spend the time because we're not going to backport to Rails 4. So even if you fix it for yourself, it's not going to make it into Rails code base if it's already fixed on master because we don't backport bugs. We're not backporting past 4.2 right now. And once 5.1 comes out, 4.2 is not getting backports either, unless it's a security vulnerability. So bugs only go back one or two releases, I think. So that's important to keep in mind so that you don't waste your time. Number two, we don't take what we call cosmetic pull requests. So changing all of the hash rockets, which I think we already fixed that so that we stopped getting those pull requests. (laughs) Changing all the hash rockets... I don't know, changing all of the spellings of color to the European one, which technically the correct spelling in the Rails code base is the English spelling, just as a style guide, not as like we've determined that U.S. English is the best English. It's just a style guide situation. And so, so we don't take pull requests like that. So if you have a feature and you haven't written it yet and you're not sure if it's going to be accepted, you just send a message to the Rails, Ruby on Rails mailing list because we don't take issue requests on the Rails tracker, Rails issues tracker on GitHub, mostly because we just don't want it to get like bombarded with like all the issues people want. But it, and then there's a big difference between I want this issue and I want to work on it, and I want this feature and I want to work on it, and I want this feature and I want Rails core to build it. Yeah, presumably you have a better chance of getting it in there if you are saying I want this and I'm willing to do it. Then yeah. So the big problem comes in. So that's when the, the like problem of like how much work do you want to do comes in. And that's why we say, if you haven't already done the work, send a message to the mailing list because that's where it can be discussed better with like a broader group of people who are not just poor and contributors. And it gets emailed out every morning or whatever you have set on your Google groups settings. And then everyone can chime in there. If you've already built it and you know you want it, you don't want to ask beforehand if it should be done. Maybe it's better to show your proof of concept with it already written, open a pull request, make sure you have lots of details about why you think it's important, what your use case is, and stuff like that. Now, depending on who cares most about that part of Rails is going to determine if it's a really small feature, we have all of the pull requests automatically get assigned to somebody who has committers access or push access, but that person might not know whether or not that's a good feature to add. So like, for example, I don't really have that much in like mentally, like don't know that much about active job. And so I probably wouldn't be merging new features to active job. I would ask someone else like David, who who knows like what he wants from active job better than like, because I don't, I don't really use it. We don't use it at GitHub. And generally it seems like works right now. So <laughs> for my purpose, I don't know what features it needs because I don't use it every day. So I might not merge something to that. Whereas because I just wrote system tests, I'm a little bit, I care a lot more about what the code looks like and what the future features are right now, especially since we're not in a final release. So I've personally been taking all of those pull requests 
and deciding whether or not they get merged because that's a feature I wrote and a feature I care a lot about. Uh, if you open a routing feature, Andrew White is going to be looking at your pull request because he knows the most about routing. If you open an active record pull request, it could be me or Aaron or Sean Griffin who cares the most about it. So it really depends on like who's like really into that part of the code base, especially if it's a new parts or like action cable. David is going to care more about new code because it's still like pretty pristine and new. And so like the newer parts of Rails, we're going to be more bullish about stock code style and we're going to care a lot more about it being like closer to perfect and less like in active record. It's like, well, you know, that's an old, like I love active record, but it's old. And so it's harder to be like, no, don't write the code that way. Like write it this other way that's totally different from the rest of the style and all of active record. The ship has kind of sailed there. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it has a different, like slightly different code style. So that's what's going to happen when you ask for a feature pull request. And sometimes it's going to be really hard and you're going to get a lot of comments. I had over a hundred comments on my system test pull request. I know it sucks and it's a lot of work and it's exhausting, but it's really worth it once it, it gets merged. I don't know. It's hard, especially on a big code base where there's a lot of drive-by. You know, some people who are going to be talking like, Fighting against you on your feature are people who have never committed to Rails before and don't have a, like, don't necessarily have the same investment that you as someone who wrote a feature does. And you have to treat everybody the same because everybody's opinions are valid, even if you don't agree with them. Sure. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned sort of in passing, which is a backporting policy. The sum of all of my contributions to Rails is one uh, backport of a bug fix that was in I think it was in Rails 4, but needed to be ported to like Rails 3.2 around uh, query merges in active record. Uh -huh. You had mentioned that uh, I think Rails goes back like two versions with backporting, but who takes care of backporting? Like who kind of makes sure that that's all happening? Backporting is a little bit not a, an exact science, mostly because we have to remember to backport. Sure. And maybe this would be a good feature. Like sometimes I think it'd be, sometimes I think. This is me saying this, not having any understanding of actually how this code is written, but I think it would be a really cool feature in GitHub to be able to be like, oh, let me backport this thing that I just merged, this other branch. And if it was clean, that'd be easy. But half the time it's not clean and that's what makes it really hard. And so a lot of times it just means checking out that, checking out master, checking out 5.0 stable, backporting the merge commit and then pushing, which sometimes we don't always Sometimes I like merge and then I forget, oh wait, that was actually a bug fix and I need to backport it. <laughs> and one of the hard things right now is that we actually can't merge features because we're in a beta freeze and we don't have a stable branch for 5.1 yet because we're not in an RC. So we actually, we actually have like all of these issues, these pull requests that we're not merging right now because they are features. But yeah, so it's a manual process and that is sort of what sucks about it. And I have often forgotten to go back to versions. So I go back one and then realize I didn't go back both of them or the code has changed so much between four, two and five, or like the bug might still be present, but it's just not clear how to fix it. A lot of times if there's really, really big conflicts, then we will ask the person who opened the original pull request to do the backport and open a new pull request for that because sometimes it's just too much sure. to do manually. But yeah, so it's, it's not, not an exact science. It's supposed to, if it's a bug... Like you can just wave your magic wand and get yeah. everything backported. Yeah, so I'll just no kind of handle it case wand. by case. 
whoever's merging is supposed to be responsible for backporting. And then if you can't, you're supposed to add a needs backport label so then someone can backport it for you. Now, there are debates about like, is a documentation change? Is it a bug? I consider documentation and Xavier considers documentation a bug. It depends, like, right? So if the documentation was like completely incorrect, then that's a bug. If the documentation is like sort of incorrect, is it worth backporting two releases, especially if there are conflicts? I don't know. I think generally it's like a case by case call. You want to be careful that your bug fix or like your change that you're making doesn't change expected behavior in a negative way. And so that's where it gets hard. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you have a complicated framework and a lot of people, especially in the case of something like Rails, you almost certainly have cases where things are arguably bugs, but people have come to depend on the buggy behavior. Yeah. And, and fixing the bug will cause problems for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting that um, a fair amount. I'm actually working on the GitHub Rails 3, 2 to 4 upgrade. And I'm really close, but like some of the stuff in there, just like this is definitely reacting to a bug that exists in 3.2 and it's fixed in 4. And now I've got to like track down what the like GitHub fix was and like what the actual fix is and what's the correct behavior and should I keep GitHub code behaving like it did in 3.2 and... Yeah, I'm actually in almost the same situation on a client project right now. We're ending on 3.2, at least for the moment, but having the exact same issues of, of moving a, a, a large code base up through various archaeological layers of Rails history. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, fun is sometimes. <laughs> I, would, I do want to talk a little bit. I know you, you mentioned the, the new the system testing feature in Rails 5.1, which is one of the two or three headline features of Rails 5.1 and the one that you worked on. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So can you talk a little bit about why this feature is getting added and, and what, what it does? Yeah, so system testing in Rails 5.1 adds Capybara integration into Rails. One of the things that we found when I was at Basecamp was that like writing Capybara system tests in Basecamp 3 was a lot of work. Like we had to set up the Puma server and we had to set up the browsers and like all of these other different things that I started to feel like we were doing a whole lot of work for something that maybe Rails could take on. I mean, cause that's the whole point, right? Like Rails is all about developer happiness. And if writing your Capybara tests doesn't make you happy, then Rails is not giving you what it needs to. And also back at the Rails Comp 2014, David promised that system testing was going to be added to Rails. So he actually promised a lot of things that you wound up delivering for him because he promised that integration tests were going to get faster too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I did, I did all those things for you. Part, of, I mean, that was the thing. Is like, so part of the reason that we couldn't add system testing to Rails was because it did need to depend on integration tests, and integration tests were slow. Also, technically, for everyone who didn't know this, Action Controller test case is soft-deprecated and eventually someday will be gone. Yeah, to define all the terms here, Rails has a couple of different layers of testing. It had uh, what it traditionally called feature testing or controller testing, which did not exercise the entire stack but used a shortcut to call controllers directly. And then it also had integration testing, which did go through the routing table like a normal request, but until really until it was slow and not tremendously, you not super popular, I think, in the community until the 2014 keynote and the efforts to make it faster uh, and yeah. when it really became a priority. So you're adding to the existing integration tests default Capybara integration, is that? Yeah, it's a separate class, but it inherits from the integration tests. Mostly because that was just a way, I mean, integration test already has sessions working. It already had all the URL helpers working. 
And so instead of re-implementing all of that stuff or even half of that stuff, I figured I'm just going to inherit from action dispatch integration test. And that works mostly because you just get like all that stuff that not all the stuff. So you still can't actually access the request and response, but maybe one day that's another future feature. Okay. So you said that one of the goals of this was to make it easier to write the tests and improve developer happiness on the integration tests. So what do you do to make it easier to run these kinds of tests? For one, I, I don't like, this isn't like, oh, we think we don't like Capybara or something. Like Capybara is super great. The part that makes it hard for junior and mid programmers to figure out how do I get system tests running? Like, I don't understand. Like, what's this other library? Like, this is too hard. Like, I just want it to work. Like, I want to do rails, generate app, and then system tests just work. And so that was the goal is like, just make it work. Make it work out of the box with zero configuration. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do any work. You don't have to like figure out like, okay, add Capybara. Oh, which driver do I want to use? Like we, de we defaulted to Selenium um, for reasons that I will get to in a second. System testing is basically like full browser integration testing. It like opens either a headless driver if you're using Poltergeist or WebKit. If you want to actually see the browser running, you use Selenium and like it will actually click all of the buttons and fill in all the fields as if it was a real user doing it, but it's like a robot. So it's super cool. I picked Selenium as the default driver because it's visual. You can see it. I feel like for new programmers getting into Rails, system tests would be a little bit like mysterious if this thing just ran and took screenshots in the background and you had no idea what it was doing. Uh, so it's like really, really fun and cool to like watch Selenium like run through your stuff the first time. That was part of why I picked Selenium. Like Poltergeist requires installing stuff in Homebrew and like all these other things that they, I couldn't make it work out of the box by default. So that's why Selenium was a lot easier for that. And so basically when you generate a scaffold, it generates a system test with it. Now system tests don't run with your default test suite. Like if you run bin rails test, I made it so they don't, well, not I did actually Robin did. I was going to do that, but he did it first and it was super awesome because I couldn't <laughs> figure out how to do that. Thank you, Robin, if you were listening <laughs> for doing that. So they don't run in the main <laughs> test because they can be kind of slow. And so you have to run bin rails test system and that will run your system test separately. Uh, GitHub and when I was at Basecamp, we didn't run system tests as part of the main suite except for in CI. So that's why we don't do it in Rails because it, they can be slow and like weird. And like, if you do have a failing test, the image output is going to just like start appearing in the middle of your like test run and you don't want that anyway. So that was why. It, it integrates Capybara snapshot or something to take a, to automatically screenshot failures. Oh yeah. That's the other thing. So Capybara, you would have to like implement all of that yourself. Like, Oh, take a screenshot, do it when it fails. Rails does that by default. So it automatically saves a screenshot in your temp folder and you can look at like, okay, so why did this fail? Oh, I can see that the name was supposed to be Aria, but it was actually it. Do you have any idea what you're going to try and do next once Rails 5.1 comes out? What your next feature, the next feature you're excited about adding is, or are you, you kind of on the lookout? Oh, me personally? Yeah. Uh, I have stuff that I want to fix, but I, I don't, I actually don't know, the, don't know what the undertaking of this is, but I don't like how CSRF protection in Rails behaves. For one, it's part of the callback chain, which means that it's order dependent. And there are some few like small confusing situations where you can actually remove CSRF protection from certain actions. Just to make sure that CSRF protection is cross-site request forgery protection. It's a, it's a token that, that Rails expects from forms that are passed to the server. 
In Rails, when you make a request, it checks that the token in the request matches the token in your session. And if they don't, it denies the request from occurring. And that is so that like Rails can prevent someone else from forging your request and making a request on your behalf. So if somebody like, so say you didn't have um, CSRF protection and you had a form for your, your username or whatever, and someone went in and they were not went in, but they, someone was able to send a forged request to change your username. Now, like there's like more they need with that, you know, they need to have some sort of like access to your session, but it's still possible and super scary. So now there's nothing like CSRF protection in Rails is fine. Like it works and that's not what's broken about it. What I don't like about CSRF in Rails is it's loud when it's working. So if a token is incorrect, it throws an exception or, you know, nulls the out the session. When it's not working, it's silent. It's not like your CSRF protection isn't working and it's not on D danger, danger. It's just silent. It doesn't say anything to you. And so that's what I don't like about it because it's the opposite of how security should be. Security should be yelling at you when you're being insecure and quiet when you're not. Like it's not exceptional that someone is necessarily trying to forge a request, but it is exceptional that you don't have any protection on unless you absolutely explicitly didn't want protection on that endpoint. Yeah, I've definitely run into situations where I'm doing like a, a post through uh, JavaScript, and I forget to send over the CSRF token because I'm doing something janky, and uh, yeah. I just end up signed out. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? Uh, yeah, but that's yeah, and that's it. So that's yeah, it so protecting it. So at least that's it working. The scary part right. comes in yeah. is that because of the filters, because the actions and the before filters in Rails are order dependent. If you were to say like to skip CSRF protection in one controller. And then log in on another action and your log, and your login is depending on your CSRF token. You won't actually be protected on that new route that you added that you logged in on. So say you have like a delete request that comes from an email for an unsubscribe and, Oh, I don't want CSRF protection for the first post, but I want it for the second post when they log in. It won't be, it might not be on depending on. I have slides about it, so maybe I'll just give you the slides because it, it explains <laughs> it much better. The application controller filters are always going to come first. So if you skip one of them, they're not going to be called later in the chain. You have to call it again in the chain because you've already skipped it and it was skipped too early, um, depending on like right. what your conditionals are. So you have the possibility of an edge case where you think that the protection is still on, but you've actually bypassed it and you don't really know that. Yeah, I mean, this wouldn't happen somewhere where like you're not calling skip before filter, but it can also happen in places like gems where certain gems might have controllers that aren't protected because of the order of the filters. And so that, that's what's really scary about it is that it just, it's just too quiet. It's not like yelling at you when it's not secure. The problem is I don't know how to fix that. I just know that yeah. I want to fix it. <laughs> so, and it has to be something that's backwards compatible because so many people rely on CSR protection. I can't, we can't just break everybody's site. Right. So you want to have some way where it knows if it's been skipped or something like that. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to make like talk about what I think it should be. And then people be like, that's not what you built. That's not what it that's acts fair. like. Yeah, I think I, it that's... should be something more like you explicitly whitelist actions somewhere and not just like in controllers where they might get lost. Well, we'll see. I, that's what I would like to work on next. 
I don't know when or if I'll get to work on it, but it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I know that there are some security researchers that don't think our CSR protection is good enough, partially because it's confusing for users. So yeah, that's something that I would like to work on, but it's hard. Security is really hard. Something that I thought was kind of interesting, which was uh, user expectations. Because uh, obviously you're on a really high-profile project with Rails, and uh, how often do you find that people's like uh, potential users' expectations of what's being built uh, influences what you end up having to do? Well, you mean on Rails or on GitHub? Uh, Rails or any project, really? Yeah, I mean GitHub. GitHub is a pretty high-profile project. It's sort of the open source experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. So with Rails, like, and this is actually something interesting that I'm going to talk about in in my talk. Oh, I don't think I mentioned this. I'm speaking at RailsConf on system tests, so you should come to RailsConf, and then you can learn all about it. I'm going to demo it. But then I'm also going to talk a lot about the what it means to build a feature in open source and how that's so different from building a, like a product feature. Uh, your stakeholders are different. Like Instead of just like, oh, I've got the CEO who cares about this feature or something, you end up with every CEO in the world caring about your feature. And uh, they all have opinions about how it should be built and like what the default options should be options should be and like what it should look like and how it should behave and how it should benefit them. And that's awesome, but also extremely stressful. Feeling like everybody, like you have to please everybody, which is something that I struggle with a lot. Like, oh, everybody asks for all these changes. And if I don't even at least respond to them, they're going to think that I'm rude or something. And you know, when really it's just like, I don't have, I have 135 comments on this pull request and I just can't anymore. Like there's certain opinions I have to care more about than others. This is where some projects use like a, a proposal process. Python has the pep process and Ember has something where they solicit comment. There's sort of a structured way to solicit comments on a new feature. Yeah. In the design phase. And sometimes in the implementation phase, Rails doesn't do that in quite a structured way, but it sounds like for right. the testing thing, you had much the same experience, just uh, with a little bit less structure. Yeah, we have like a lot of internal conversation, but a lot of times, like, you know, once you open that pull request, it's just, I don't know, people started tweeting about it. So that brought in a lot more attention, I think, than it, than a normal feature request would have gotten. And I hope that no one is sitting at home, like, terrified that if they open a feature pull request, they're definitely getting 150 comments and like they just can't deal. But that's probably not going to happen. This was a really big pull request with like really big, well, actually it ended up being a lot smaller. It started out a lot bigger than it ended up being, but it was a really big feature that had, you know, a lot of opinions behind it. And ultimately I'm happy with where it ended up. So that's something to keep in mind. And I have this, I have this, funny little analogy about it. If when building like features in open source feels a little bit like going to a, a nice restaurant that has an open kitchen. And you're kind of like, I don't want to see that. Like I don't I don't want to watch <laughs> someone make my food right now, but I can't look away and then you like start to see like cranky cr the cranky side of open source like in people who like normally like behave like behave like really well. You're just like, wow, this person is just starting to feel the heat right now and seems a little crabby. Well, yeah, I think that there are certain things that people have attachments to. There's certainly people who have opinions about how a testing framework should work, and there are certainly people who have opinions about how security frameworks should work. And if you happen to be submitting something that is in the wheelhouse of people that care about it, um, then you're going to hear from it. Yeah. Okay. And like a big new framework, 
a new testing framework or like a big security feature is and should get a lot of comments. Like I really want the polymorphic types when I ask like, is this a repository to work by default? That kind of stuff, which it might now, but I'm <laughs> working on Rails for stuff, so I have no idea anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody wants to start contributing to Rails or to an open source project and they maybe don't want to start off in the 150 comment lane, what's the best way for somebody to start to get involved if they, if they feel like they're interested in it? Documentation is the most important thing. And I don't mean like going through and finding like that one spelling mistake. I mean like looking at like how features work and whether or not the documentation for that makes sense, especially if you're new to Rails, because the documentation is almost always written by someone who wrote the feature and they know it really well. And so they forget all the little details about like, why does Selenium do this thing or whatever? I don't know. Right. Yeah, so documentation is a great way for, uh, it's a, it's actually in some cases being a little bit newer to the framework is a, is an advantage when you're trying to submit these documentation requests. Yeah. And the other thing is just like use the betas. Nobody tests the betas. Uh, it's actually really surprising to me because this beta might be one of the most tested betas that we've ever had. All of the new features had a ton of pull requests fixing things that were broken about them within the first week, which is like never happens. No one ever tests betas. So it's amazing that this beta got super tested. So everybody should test the beta releases. Like have a little app that you just built, like not your production app. Like I'm not saying that anyone like if you, master is super stable. Like I know that like there are apps running on master right now in production. So, or maybe not master, maybe Rails 501 or whatever, but that's still pretty like close to master. So you don't have to do that, but like having a test app on the side where you can just upgrade the Rails version and like see like do joins work? Does running the tests work? Does like these little things that like my other app does that are weird, do they work? Making sure those things just work. My experience is that by the time Rails gets to beta, Rails itself is pretty solid, not perfect, but yeah. generally pretty solid. Where you get to where you get in trouble if you're trying to build something on uh, on the betas is in the larger ecosystem. And the older yeah. the gems that you depend on and the more that you depend on things that don't necessarily interact with Rails that are a little bit more uh, on the periphery, the more likely you are to have problems running an early beta. Yeah, and so that's why yeah, having just... a test app makes it a lot easier because you don't have to then worry about that stuff. You can just upgrade all your gems and call it a day. If somebody's doing a lot of like client work and not really, sort of like dabbling in open source more than anything, mm -hmm. uh, for me it's always... Uh, my contributions always sort of come from a place of, oh, this thing that I want to do just isn't working, so let me figure out how I can fix it in the underlying gem. Yeah, and I mean, um, that's... I was doing a, an upgrade for a client recently, moving from Rails 3 to Rails 4, and uh, we found a few incompatibilities, so I ended up having to strip out an entire library and put something else in. But... Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's going to be easiest. Like, a lot, of, a lot of people ask me, like, okay, so where do I start in the issues tracker? And it's like, then you're starting with someone else's issue that you don't understand. And that's going to be frustrating, especially if, you know, you don't necessarily know how to debug Rails yet. I think it's a lot easier if you have an issue that you found. Uh, and I'm not saying that you can't go into the issues tracker, just that sometimes it's harder because the people who are opening issues, like especially issues that haven't been commented on by anyone from like the Rails team yet, those are going to be the ones that are missing the most details because that means that no one else has like tried running the script yet and maybe it doesn't even break. 
And a lot of people don't even write a script. And so someone will try to go to fix it before they write a script and find out it's not actually a bug. So that's why like, first, like don't try to fix issues that don't have a reproduction script because they might not be real issues. And if you open an issue, send a reproduction script so that we can <laughs> test it. I actually, I gave a talk in 2015 RailsConf about um, contributing to Rails. I think most of it is still valid. Um, a lot of it is actually was just like a secret debugging talk that was disguised as a contributing to Rails talk. That has a lot about like how I debug stuff in Rails, which is not necessarily how you would traditionally debug stuff in a regular app, knowing things like C tags and being able to hook your app up to a local checkout of Rails and then doing a bisect to figure out where the behavior changed. Doing stuff like source location. Source location is like my favorite tool. You basically can just ask any method in Rails, like where it's defined. Right. And Pry does that too, if you're using Pry. Yeah. I like a lazy debugger. I'm, I always joke. I learned all of my debugging tools from Aaron Patterson, but really I, I used to do this anyway. So it just sort of like reinforced the habits that I already had, which is like puts, just puts debugging like everywhere. Yeah. Aaron has a blog post about that too, about just being a puts debugger somewhere. We'll get all of that stuff in the show notes. Eileen's talk and Aaron's yeah. blog post. Eileen, um, thank you so much for being with us. Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can reach me on Twitter at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at DevRaps. Our guests today were Eileen Yushatel, who is at Eileen Codes on Twitter, and Andrew Horner, uh, who I don't think is actually on Twitter in any useful way. <laughs> you can reach him by screaming really loud, I suppose. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at Tech Done Right. That's with underscores, tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences. Find us at TableXI where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of the Tech Done Right podcast. Thank you. Thank you.